you know, I'm looking for a job. And so my mom was like networking for me on the pickleball court and set up this call. And Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. The Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization staffed by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia, with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical. Welcome in. My name is Sean Belowski, and I'm a second-year MPP student. So I think this is our 17th episode this year, and it's the first one we're doing on environmental policy. I feel that's been a bit of a personal failure, given we're in the middle of a climate crisis, but we're going to solve that with this episode. To bring some expertise to the conversation, first-year MPP student Aaron Melly will be our co-host. One of the unfortunate things about COVID and doing this whole thing on Zoom is I haven't gotten to meet really anyone from the cohort a year behind me, so I got to know Erin through this process. She has a background in environmental policy and is incredibly smart and engaging, so I'm excited that you all will get to meet her. Then Aaron and I had a chance to catch up with David Paler, who is the director of the Virginia Department for Environmental Quality, or DEQ. DEQ is the environmental agency here in Virginia, and it's responsible for administering laws and regulations related to air quality, water quality, water supply, renewable energy, and land protection. David Paler has been appointed as director of DEQ now for four straight administrations, starting with Tim Kaine in 2006, continuing on with Bob McDonald and Terry McAuliffe, and now with Ralph Northam. So someone who has served governors on both sides of the aisle, and as you'll hear in our conversation, has quite a few stakeholder interests to consider. I hope you all enjoy our conversation with him. But first, let's get to our co-host. Let's meet Aaron. So, so Aaron, how is, how's your semester going? It is good. It's busy. Um, you know, things are crunching around in the, the pandemic times, but I'm happy the weather's turning. So that's, that's bringing some joy. You know, I'm, um, it is nice that the weather is is I'm looking at a just blue sky, skies and really nice weather. But um, I hate though the fact that I don't get to really meet or know your cohort because we're doing this all over Zoom, and so it's just I can't imagine how just bizarre for you all because at least we had the first semester right. and a half on on grounds, and so I imagine it's just a little bit of a different dynamic. It definitely is. Um, one plus was that we had our orientation in person. So I was able to meet some people that way and form some connections. And I think my cohort um, is making the best of it. And it's like pretty connected digitally as, as best we can and doing all of that. So I, I'm thankful. And I think Batten is trying to, you know, do the best that they can, but it is weird. You know, I, I'm in Charlottesville um, and I, I'm going to in some in-person classes, which is really nice, but you know, then it's like, oh, I'm not sure if we can really study in person. Like, I guess we'll do it over Zoom, which, you know, is nice, but gets tiring. <laughs> I'm I'm very thankful for the podcast because it's basically the only avenue I have to like get to know people from your cohort. So we had Marissa, um, she, co- she co-hosted one, I guess mm-hmm. that was, that was last semester. And so I'm very, very thankful that at least there's this medium to, to try to get to know some of you all. Um, and, you know, so we're talking about a topic today that we haven't really touched so far this year on the podcast and one I was excited to kind of to tackle and that's environmental policy. And so I'm just kind of curious what, uh, what got you into environmental policy? Yeah. Um, I think it started when I was an undergrad, I majored in sustainable development and economics and sustainable development was like really broad and inter- interdisciplinary. And I liked that. And I liked pairing it with economics. 
Um, but uh, I, my school was in New York City and I felt that every econ major was going into finance. <laughs> and I was like, that is not something I wanna do. I wanted to graduate undergrad without taking a finance class. Like that was my goal. Um, for better or for worse, I did that. Um, so I, I looked at research positions a lot, um, like in my summer internships and my first summer internship that I was able to get, um, they took a chance on me and it was the best experience ever. It was this program called LAKES, which stood for Linking Applied Knowledge in Environmental Sustainability. And it was a National Science Foundation grant given to the University of Wisconsin-Stout, which is a small university um, in the town of Menominee. And they had students come every summer to basically work in the area and try and solve the issue of the lake pollution because Menominee is at the bottom of the Red Cedar watershed and all of the farmland runs down into the lake and it's now has these toxic algae blooms to the point that like the town will smell in the summer like there's huge economic loss like you can't really swim in it you can't recreate on the lake. So I was part of the economics team and we were looking at the impact of the like algae pollution on housing, on the housing market. And we sent out surveys to the community and asked, you know, what's your willingness to pay to clean this lake? Like, how do you value this? And I thought that was just like, so interesting of like the like complexity of local policy of, you know, this community is really impacted by what's happening upstream, but you can't really coordinate those efforts. And yeah, that was my first intro. Um, and from a research perspective, and I really liked the research and the data analysis aspect of that. Um, and that's how I kind of began my journey into environmental policy. Well, then, and so, you know, you work for a couple of years and now you're at Batten. What, what brought you to Batten? Yes. Um, so in like discovering research there, I also did research at Columbia Business School. And when I graduated, I kind of thought I wanted an econ PhD. So I just did like a pretty basic econ RA position. Um, and I got to work on a lot of cool stuff like carbon taxes and like paid family leave and other initiatives. Um, and then, yeah, I, I really started doing some self-analysis of like, isn't econ PhD for me? It's like really theoretical. And I, and I liked that outreach and like the push of the legislation, like back when I was in Menominee, like talking to the community and, you know, trying to implement change. And I think advice I've gotten from, at, from Batten professors is, you know, wh what is your view of like what you want to do in the research to policy pipeline? And I don't think I'm fully on the research, research side. So yeah, I, I just got connected to Batten and they were excited about me and I was excited about them. And I'm just really thankful. I think it was the best decision for me. <laughs> Do, do you have any, um, I, I was going to ask what your post-Batten plans are, but, um, you know, do you have anything lined up like for an internship? Do you know what you're, you're trying to do? For this summer, I actually am just about to accept a position at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So it's a, a Fed job. So I'm excited because I, I really have been trying to get into government work. Um, and it's pretty like data heavy. We, uh, like analyze to see if there's like market manipulation in different energy sectors and inspect and investigate those issues. Um, I think like I would love to explore more local government, um, but you know, you internship search is, is quite a, a process and uh, finding paid ones is also quite a process. So. That's yes, that's very true. I'm, <laughs> I'm, um, yeah, the internship process, I'm going through the job search process. It is yeah, just the, so much fun. Mm -hmm, I know. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I'm excited about it. Well, we so we had a really uh, 
we had a chance to catch up with uh, Virginia Department of Environmental Quality uh, Director David Paler. And so David Paler is, he's actually really interesting. He's worked in Virginia state government since the 1970s. So he's worked worked in, in Virginia state government since the 70s. He was kind of doing, um, you know, in, in environmental positions. He has, you know, that's his education background. He got into politics or the political side, when Mark Warner uh, appointed him um, as a deputy director, I believe, and then Tim Kaine in 2006 appointed him as the director of the the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality, which is effectively the the environmental agency of Virginia. And so he's been in that position. This is now his fourth governor. He's Mm -hmm. served governors from from both sides of the aisle. and so, you know, before we, we kind of throw it to that interview, I'm curious, you know, what, what do you think listeners need to know kind of going into this conversation? I think that's something that I thought about going into the conversation and we brought up in that talk was just the interesting dynamic between politics and climate policy and environmentalism. And, you know, he comes from an environmental background and then wound up in a pretty politically oriented job. And we talk about how, you know, staying within the bounds of the law and also the science, but, you know, there's a lot of tensions and when those things conflict and when different stakeholders. So I think he was a really interesting person to talk to because he's, he's seen a lot and he's seen a lot of changes. So he has a lot of valuable insight, but um, for aspiring policy leaders in this field, like myself, it is really interesting to listen to all of these voices and the on the ground realities and, you know, think about how you push these systems when you get frustrated by them. So that was something I was thinking about um, when I was, was speaking with him. Yeah. And, you know, again, when you talk about stakeholders and environment and energy, and, you mm-hmm. know, we, we kind of touch a little bit on, you know, Dominion's influence, Appalachian Power's influence, and, um, you know, um, how you handle those stakeholders when you have, you know, a we're in the middle of a climate crisis and mm-hmm. there's a lot going on. And so, yeah, he definitely does. Um, has to make some hard decisions, I would imagine. Yeah, so it was really interesting to hear his perspective. And, you know, I don't know, he's he's a definitely interesting character and like people have lots of opinion from all over the spectrum. So it was, it was a good time to pick his brain. <laughs> well, without further ado, here's our conversation with director David Paler. So director Paler, we, we just finished up recently the Virginia legislative session and just kind of a pretty broad question, but how are, how are you feeling coming out of that session? Well, um, in a lot of ways, it was a great session for um, DEQ. Governor Northam actually early in his term was um, concerned about all the money that DEQ has lost over the years. Um, we have since uh, 2001, uh, 46 million dollars lost and about 100 possessions lost. And during that time period, uh, expectations on DEQ continued to uh, increase. And one of the governor's uh, goals was to try to try to restore some of the um, uh, some of the capacity that we have lost. And uh, so $12 million of basically new money um, looks like it's going to come out of the legislature this year. Both houses supported it. So it looks like we're going to be able to do a little bit of rebuilding. So from um, an internal perspective, uh, that's a really good thing. And I can't remember that uh, ever happening before. Uh, we're going to use uh, some of that money for a few, uh, some new initiatives, especially in the uh, context of environmental justice initiatives. So that's um, a great thing. Um, the legislation that passed it uh, was 
you know, was all pretty positive. Uh, we have a, a lot of work studies to do, like uh, trying to find uh, new and better ways to enhance recycling. And um, we made some real progress towards the Chesapeake Bay cleanup in some uh, uh, new commitments from um, wastewater dischargers to reduce their uh, nutrient discharges. So uh, it was an interesting session uh, because it was all virtual. Um, a first, and I guess for me, I'm hoping a last, uh, <laughs> because you know sometimes the face-to-face -face is just really important. But um, but we got through it. Um, Zoom turns out to be a, a great medium. We're using it here, and um, and so I'm amazed at how well uh, it did go, given given all the challenges that COVID represents. Well, it sounds very action-packed, and you got a lot done. And with that, I'm actually interested in, in how you began this position. Um, you have an educational background in zoology and fishery science. So how did you transition from that background to a position at DEQ, which is much more policy and politically oriented? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And maybe I don't know. Um, uh, like you say, um, I, I, I've, I actually remember um, uh, when I first went to Duke, uh, I sat down with my freshman advisor I asked him, so are there gonna be any jobs in environmental protection in the future? And his answer to me was, well, if there aren't, we're all in trouble. Uh, yeah, because I developed sort of a, um, a, a real um, sort of commitment to environmental uh, protection, really even when I was in high school and camping and that sort of thing. So I studied uh, marine biology and zoology at Duke. Um, I, I studied actually fish toxicology at Oregon State. And so my entire career has been with the state. Um, I started working at the State Water Control Board uh, back in the 70s. Um, and most of my time was in the field uh, doing fisheries work and that sort of thing. I was involved in for four or five years in developing a toxics monitoring program and things like that. And then I made the mistake of getting into management and sort of one thing, I moved around, I moved from a regional office back to central office, uh, worked in a petroleum storage tank programs. And uh, during the Gilmore years, Governor Gilmore, I was um, uh, director of operations. And then Governor Warner called me and asked me to be a deputy secretary. So that got me into politics, whether I wanted to or not. Um, and then Governor Kane asked me to uh, come back and, and be the agency head. So it was just sort of a gradual progression, but it sort of has uh, as its roots, um, you know, j me just being very, very uh, committed to and interested in take, uh, taking care of our environment. I was hoping we'd get through the interview without you mentioning Duke, uh, given our, our UVA uh, affiliation, but yeah, well, we'll, uh, we'll forgive you for that. I have to say, I have to say this year, I'm a little bit more hesitant to mention Duke than, uh, although the game went pretty well this year, but uh, since then, you know, so anyway, bad year for Duke, uh, still a good year for UVA. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it, it went, that game went well for you all. But uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you're you're working now with your your fourth governor. You know, you've been the director of DEQ since 2006. You've you've been with the state since the 70s, as you mentioned. I'm curious, just how has the state's approach to environmental concerns and environmental policy? How have you seen that evolve? And how have you seen, particularly in your role as director of DEQ, how has that role evolved since you since you first started in 2006? Wow. There's a lot, uh, a lot in that question. <laughs> um, I will say, it, working for different governors, um, 
One of the things that we have been uh, really committed to is being nonpartisan. I've worked for governors of both parties. Um, our uh, goal is to uh, stick to the law and to stick to the science. So um, that, that's just um, a thing that, uh, that, that's been um, really important to us. Um, so in terms of, uh, if your question was, how has environmental protection evolved over the years? I guess I wanted to say that it's really gotten um, much more sophisticated from, you know, from a water perspective. Uh, when I first uh, started uh, in the 70s, uh, we used to have more than 300 fish kills uh, a year. Water quality was just a, a huge problem. Uh, dead fish all the time. Uh, wastewater treatment plants, all they ever did was um, uh, take the grit out and nothing else. And then we, you know, then we began to get biological treatment for oxygen. And then we moved into uh, making sure that we were, uh, that there weren't toxic substances in the, uh, in the wastewater. And then we got into nitrogen and that sort of stuff. And now we're moving into um, uh, emerging contaminants and things like that. So, you know, we're just uh, learning more and doing more in the air world. You know, when, when I started uh, doing air work, which was, was in the middle 90s, you know, our, um, our ozone standard was 120 parts per billion. It's now 70. We didn't meet the 120 standard back in the middle 90s. Uh, now we pretty darn close to meeting the 70 standard. Made a lot of progress there. Acid rain was a big deal that everybody talked about. Um, probably back in the 80s, um, you know, a program got developed, a cap and trade program got developed for um, for that. And we've really, uh, for SO2, uh, sulfur dioxide, and uh, we've come a long way towards reducing uh, uh, acid rain. Uh, and, uh, and now we're looking at carbon issues uh, uh, and climate issues. So, and, and then in the waste world, uh, um, when I started, every county had their own had their own land, landfill. Um, I don't know. Within 20 or 30 years, uh, 50 or 60 percent of them were leaking, and we had to. We and so we have uh, migrated to much more sophisticated, better designed landfills. And now we're beginning to have discussions about how do we how do we recycle more. And um, so so that's uh, been um, a, a big evolution. Um, and you know, in the, I guess I'll call it the the political uh, world. I mentioned environmental justice uh, earlier. You know, as a as a society, we're becoming uh, more and more aware of environmental justice issues and and the need to be um, aware of uh, uh, disparate impacts to uh, uh, parts of our citizenry. And so, um, where that's been uh, a big area of discussion as we began to really ramp up and become more sophisticated uh, in, in those concerns as well. So yeah, I'm not sure as that's exactly what was at your question, but uh, maybe you can uh, help me figure out what else um, you might be interested in. No, I, th I think you, you touched on it. And I think there, there's just a lot more that, that um, I, I think it is an incredibly challenging um, the challenges are always evolving. Um, and I think it's, it's very interesting, but I'll let, sorry, Aaron, sorry to cut you off. Well, I, I was just going to say, uh, you're exactly right. You know, I've talked a little bit about the, uh, the progress, uh, that we've made in, in all of these areas. And I could go on and on about that. Uh, 
improved water quality, air quality, and, and all of that. But, and, and, that, and that comes within the context of uh, us having about 60% more people in Virginia now than we had uh, 40 or 50 years ago. It, uh, and so um, it, it's just, uh, you know, the more people you got, the, uh, the more challenging uh, uh, it is to protect the environment. So we've had to go in, in, that, uh, in that context. And, um, uh, and, and so the challenges are different. And, um, you know, so we have global warming challenges now that we didn't have before. And some of our Chesapeake Bay challenges are because we got more people flushing toilets. So we got to figure out ways to deal with that. So, you know, I, I'm really, really proud of the progress we've made in the last 34 years. And, you know, and the challenges just keep changing and just keeps coming. Plastic pollution is, uh, is obviously a thing that is uh, closely connected to um, the number of people that we have living here and lifestyle issues and things like that. So different challenges. Uh, and and um, I'm just hopeful that, uh, you know, that the kind of success we had in the past will be, will, will spur the success we need in the future. Absolutely. And I think you highlight like the dynamicism of these problems. They evolve with people and with people's needs. And, you know, you have the evolution of technologies and environmental needs also evolving with politics alongside sometimes in contention with. Um, and I think an interesting part of this aspect is there's so many needs of different like constituencies and stakeholders. You have businesses like community, residential, you bring up environmental justice. So you know, who bears the burden of pollution, but then who bears the burden of cleaning it up? Um, you know, when you talk about regressive carbon taxes and stuff like that, how do you make things equitable? So when you, when you look at a challenge, how do you assess all of these different needs and then figure out who to respond to, how to weigh different issues? Well, it's great, uh, great question. Um, you know, some of it we get from, um, uh, from the legislature. Uh, some of it we get from our governor. Every governor that has come in has had um, a, a set of things uh, that they want to uh, focus on. And we just uh, sort of, we, we have to break it down uh, because, you know, we have so many uh, stakeholders with competing interests and all of those stakeholders uh, need to be heard, have legitimate issues, need to have a seat at the table. And so, um, one of the things that we're um, committed to is collaboration. Um, if you know the name Jim Collins, he wrote um, a book, uh, Good to Great, and a couple of others. He um, uh, talked one time um, a few years back uh, as he was beginning to look at uh, uh, how to be great in the, in the public sector. He said, you know, the problem with the public se sector is that you live in a thousand points of no. Uh, we don't want this. We don't want that. We don't want this. And, and, and so it, 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 lots of competing interests. And our um, goal here at DEQ is to, um, uh, to have the collaboration that uh, evaluates all of those interests. We certainly have objectives in mind that the governor may have given us or the legislature may have given us that we, that we need to move forward with. But as we develop um, our path forward and are putting regulations together that are going to describe how we're going to uh, manage, uh, you know, uh, recycling or um, resiliency or, or things like that. Uh, we bring all the stakeholders to the table and we have open discussions uh, about here's the goal. You know, how can we get there? Get a lot of input from folks. Uh, don't always get to um, 
what they like to call peace in the valley. Uh, but having heard all the different perspectives, it gives us the best opportunity uh, to get to uh, the sweet spot that meets the goal and at the same time uh, is responsive to um, uh, as many of the different uh, perspectives of, of the citizens as, uh, uh, as we can. Absolutely. And within the, the peace of the valley realm, you have like received, and as, as any environmental decision does, like backlash from certain stakeholders. Um, how does that like affect your reflection of that situation and like change your relationships and your criteria moving forward in future decisions? Well, um, I mentioned earlier that we try to stick to the law and stick to the science. And, um, uh, and you know, actually, I would have to say, even in the last three or four or five years, um, uh, DEQ seems to have gotten uh, more in the, uh, in the crosshairs um, uh, with some citizens because of disagreement over uh, projects that uh, are out there. Um, as you know, um, natural gas pipelines are one of them where we've gotten lots of criticism. And, um, you know, we've had some other projects where we have been um, um, asked to uh, process permit applications and perhaps even issue a permit for, uh, for sites that um, uh, maybe folks in the, in the neighborhood uh, didn't, uh, didn't want it there. Uh, and it's really, really challenging because regulatory certainty is one of the, um, uh, has, has been one of the hallmarks of, uh, of this Commonwealth, and we have, um, um, for the last four or five or six governors, uh, they've really been focused on wanting to be um, uh, one of the best run uh, states in the nation. And we've, and and Virginia has rated really, really highly um, as a best run state in the nation. And one of the keys to that is um, is regulatory certainty. Uh, whoever's uh, living here, doing business here, whatever, they know what the rules are and, and they uh, abide by them. Um, you know, now the rules may change over time and if they do, uh, we, uh, uh, that, uh, we change with that as well. But for any of those issues, we, we take the regulations um, that are in place at the time and um, and we listen to all the stakeholders to make sure that we know what their concerns are and, ha and within the context of those regulations um, are able to accommodate their concerns uh, as much as possible. Um, and then we move forward. Um, what I'm seeing now in terms of um, controversy and conflict is I'll just, I'll, I'll just call it maybe disagreements uh, over uh, uh, maybe uh, what the law is and what you might think it ought to be. And um, and we live in the environment of what the law is. I said something about law and the science. You know, the science may, in fact, um, uh, inform us and does from uh, time and again tell us that maybe our laws need to be and our regulations need to be upgraded um, to meet, uh, to deal with, for example, you know, uh, it looks like we may be having... Um, higher frequency, high, higher intensity storms in the future because of uh, climate issues. Uh, and so, okay, uh, we need to look at our erosion and sediment control uh, rules and see if they uh, need to be adapted to kind of the new reality uh, that we're seeing uh, with, uh, uh, with that particular issue. So regulations need to be adapted, but regulatory um, certainty and, and predictability are also um, a thing that we um, stay pretty committed to here at DEQ. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, but within that, like, I completely understand you having to work within the confines of the law and the science and giving people certainty is essential in making policy. Um, that said, does the like inner conservationist and like in land management protection um, within you feel frustrated at times or want to change things within the system? And if so, can you and how to do that? Well, absolutely. Um, there are times when um, I wish the answer could be no, or it could be different, or this, that, or the other. Um, and so, yeah, uh, we have the opportunity um, to make some of those changes uh, with the cooperation of the governor's office uh, to propose legislation that would um, address some of those um, new issues. In fact, one of the pieces of uh, legislation that we that we proposed this year that um, uh, that act, that was successful. We call it we called it the Water Efficiency Act, but one of the things that we regulate is withdrawals from state streams and and, and groundwater as well. And of course, our uh, our task is uh, to help the citizens get the water that they need, but also make sure that the um, that the biota in, in the stream continue to have what they need um, uh, to survive. Because um, that's you know one of our fundamental jobs is to uh, is to protect uh, stream ecology so um, you know somebody applies for a permit and they um, uh, and, and they want uh, two million gallons a day and we have to decide if that's necessary or not well one of the uh, I think a landmark piece of legislation that we got this year is if you apply for a water withdrawal permit you've got to prove to us that you're going to use it efficiently and and the example there is uh, we've got some, uh, water supply utilities who uh, lose as much of, as 60% of the water through leaks in the pipes before, before it ever gets to the home. So, you know, we, as we identify those things, um, you know, we need to start, uh, we, we're doing some things to make sure that we are protecting uh, the water in the stream and not taking out more water um, um, than needs to come out. We we proposed a piece of legislation uh, this year related to environmental justice uh, for um, notification of the public and that sort of thing. And um, that was not successful. We'll try again next year. Um, so we're, we're not always successful with, um, with our initiatives, but you raise a, a really, really good point when, uh, when things aren't, uh, aren't being as protective as they need to be. Um, then that's one of the things that we can do is work with the governor's office to try to adapt our rules and regulations to make sure that we're more protective. You know, I, I think, you know, as we talk about stakeholders and obviously, you know, kind of the 800 pound gorilla or the, the public utilities, and I'm just curious, and, you know, Dominion, they, they provide, you know, power to more than half of half of the state. And, um, you know, particularly for elected officials, um, you know, there's just kind of a, a conflict just in, in the way that Dominion's able to, to contribute to their uh, to their campaigns. Um, they could do something. The legislature could do something about it, but they don't. Um, and so I, I'm just kind of curious in your role. How do you view the public utilities like AEP, like Appalachian Power or, or Dominion? How do, how do you view? Because obviously they have to have a say. They're, they're huge players in the in the state. But how do you how do you view them as stakeholders? Well, um, I mean, they have whatever role they have with the legislature. We um, view basically, uh, if you want to talk about the uh, the business community um, uh, equally, 
um, talked about the law and the science, um, don't have um, any uh, inclination to give uh, Dominion um, a break uh, on the rules uh, any more so uh, than we would um, a small business, uh, uh, you know, a dry cleaner or something like that. You're exactly right that um, that the um, you know so some of the larger utilities uh, and Dominion certainly has come under a lot of uh, uh, a lot of criticism uh, lately because of uh, uh, the way they've gotten they have historically been involved in in, in politics. But we just try to uh, to deal straight up with them uh, just as we would anybody else and um, and apply the rules and they don't get. Uh, any more of a break or less of a break than anybody else would just because they happen to be um, a big player. Do you, um, you know, kind of building off the question that, that Aaron asked, um, you know, kind of when the environmentalists and the politics kind of come in tension and you mentioned kind of getting dragged into politics, do you, do you like the politics side of it? Is there, <laughs> I mean, do you? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. <laughs> You know, I wanted to say, you know, the thousand points of no thing. The other thing I would say is sometimes we feel like uh, saltwater taffy being pulled in five directions at once. Right. Um, but I do like trying to find solutions to problems. Um, and so to the extent that um, the politicians or, um, you know, the constituent groups or whatever, um, are dealing uh, in good faith with us and we're having uh, honest, open dialogue uh, about what the problem is and what the solutions are. Um, th that, that feels um, very good to me. Um, and, and, and I'm pretty gratified by that. And because I am really a believer in our mission, um, I get pretty gratified by trying to um, make a positive difference. Uh, Maybe back to one of Aaron's questions, sometimes wish I could make more of a positive difference, but that's sort of what I think good government is. I, I said uh, uh, regulatory uh, uh, certainty and reliability. Um, that's what good government is. Good government provides um, um, a solid baseline and treats everybody openly and honestly and, and, and tries to find solutions and, and where you know, where we don't have the tools that we need uh, to make the progress we need, we go to try to find those tools with the, with the legislature. So sometimes it's gratifying and sometimes I just want to shoot myself in the head. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fair enough. Um, you know, you mentioned, I kind of want to transition a bit to um, kind of some recent initiatives in, in the state. And you mentioned just how active, particularly the last couple of years, um, kind of passing climate change legislation with the Virginia Clean Economy Act, um, you know, kind of committing to the state to net zero carbon by 2045. I know, um, you know, some environmental groups when all the dust was settled were saying it wasn't enough. And yeah, you know, I'm just curious with what's been done with the the track that, that Virginia's on, do, do you think that Virginia is doing enough, um, you know, given the, the, the scale and kind of the imminent threat of the climate crisis? Well, I think we're making some big steps in that in, in the right direction. You mentioned the fact that we've uh, now joined the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is going to cause electric generating uh, facilities like Amer uh, AEP and Dominion to get a 3% decrease every, every year, uh, at, at least for the next uh, for the next 10 years and probably keep on going. Um, we uh, are really starting to uh, ramp up our um, solar production. 
there was some legislation uh, that was passed this year uh, to create some incentives for um, uh, electric vehicles. Uh, we are um, using some money from the Volkswagen settlement um, to actually build charging stations along uh, a couple of our uh, uh, major uh, interstate highways so that that can create uh, some more comfort level for folks to have uh, electric vehicles. It, it's a it's a heavy um, a heavy lift, uh, and it's um, you know it, it's it's going to call for lifestyle changes um, uh, for all of us. Uh, is it enough? I don't know, but compared to say where we were five or ten years ago, uh, we are uh, moving much faster th than we were before. Absolutely. I mean, it's certainly a heavy lift. And one thing that adds complexity is the difficulty of the nature of air pollution itself and that, you know, where you pollute, it's it's cross-border. And also people driving cars and the nature of population shifts is really cross-border. So how do you coordinate with neighboring states, regional, or even within the national context to attack the issue of climate change? Well, I mean, a uh, number of different ways. Sometimes we uh, coordinate uh, through the Environmental Protection Agency. I am um, a member of the Environmental Council of the States, which is um, an organization The the members are uh, each of the agency heads of all of those, um, uh, all of the 50 states, uh, Puerto Rico, and we collaborate a lot. We used to meet twice a year, now we Zoom twice a year, um, but we, we spend a lot of time talking with one another about these issues, and that organization uh, really was formed 25 years ago uh, around to collaborate with EPA about things that the country needed um, writ large. Now, the states don't always agree, uh, but, but certainly we got a, a large corpus of states that, uh, that are um, committed to doing some things around climate change. And so, so a lot of it is, um, uh, is, is having discussions with EPA uh, among ourselves, uh, uh, lobbying EPA to um, to move things uh, in, in a positive direction. Uh, and so that, that that's one of the ways uh, that we do it. Uh, we know each other. I know uh, my counterparts in all the neighboring states and uh, we know how to pick up the phone and talk when there are cross-border problems that need to be solved. Absolutely. And so you can coordinate action. Do you coordinate vision for what you see in the next, you know, your targets and what you're trying to push in your states? How much is that coordinated besides just, oh, we have this initiative and this problem, we need to coordinate action on this? Well, uh, yeah, uh, some of it is vision. As you can imagine, um, uh, each state has maybe its own individual vision uh, about and, and their own governors about, uh, about what their focus is. But uh, I will say that um, through ECOS, uh, again, um, one of the visions that uh, uh, is unfolding uh, right now for a lot of, uh, of the states is uh, uh, is the environmental justice issue and, and how do we become more proactive uh, in environmental justice. And so what we are doing is uh, we're putting together a, a coalition of states who um, are going to um, share visions, share stories, uh, share information uh, to, try to try to create a collective uh, vision about uh, environmental justice. And, and we share tools for, you know, what can work and what can't work. And that helps those those states that are a little bit farther behind in one issue uh, to maybe uh, pick up the pace and, and move in a positive direction more quickly. Touching on that environmental justice, you, you talk about that's like a seems to be an increased priority. Um, 
do you see any other priorities within the Virginia state for the next five years, the next 25 years? I know certain reports have noted that some state priorities are toxins and contaminants and just furthering research to expand what we know about that. Um, do you see that as Virginia priority or what, what's on your mind? Plastics uh, and what we do about plastics is gonna be a huge prior, uh, priority. Um, recycling and solid waste uh, management uh, is a huge priority. Our focus on cleaning up the Chesapeake Bay uh, is going to be uh, require um, a focus uh, for the next uh, uh, five and ten years. Um, you know, a lot of stuff needs to be done uh, in the uh, agriculture uh, sphere and in stormwater uh, management, and and so we're having to work with farmers and work with uh, cities for um, for those kinds of things. So that is. Um, that's a, a big priority that's going to take um, a focus going forward. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I like to talk um, uh, to our folks in the staff, uh, you know, about long range planning, because um, I tell people that's how you, you, you get to what's uh, important rather than what's urgent. Uh, and, and so I sat down when I first came uh, back here as director, I sat down with uh, uh, our team and I said, okay, 10 years from now, what needs to have happened so that we can say that we uh, have been successful? And, and one of the folks um, said, we need to manage our water differently. Uh, what we're seeing uh, in the in the Commonwealth, uh, because maybe of some climate issues and maybe of water use issues, is that our our drought flows in streams are going down. Um, so there's less uh, capacity. We're seeing uh, over and over again that, uh, you know, we've always assumed in the East that there's always going to be all the water that we need for everything. Um, and it's not true. And one of the things that we focused on um, about seven or eight years ago was our coastal groundwater aquifer um, was being drained at the, at the rate of uh, two to two and a half feet a year. Uh, and we had you know, folks with permits to take out X amount of water. And if we continued allowing them to take out X amount of water, uh, you know, in about 40 years, the aquifer is gonna be drained. So we initiated, that, that was part of that long range planning. We initiated an effort where we've actually um, uh, the major water users uh, and of the groundwater um, have uh, cut back. We have gotten them in their permits to cut back their groundwater dependence by over 50%. Um, and that is projected to uh, stabilize the aquifer and the head loss. So that's just kind of one example of uh, taking, looking at long range, what are our uh, challenges and and starting to um, address, okay, what do we need to do today? But if, if we're not looking ahead five, 10 years to what are the challenges gonna be um, in, in the out years, then we're not gonna be doing what we need to do now to get there. You mentioned one of your staff members said water management. What, what would be your answer to that question? What's the most important thing you know, for the next five to 10 years? Whoosh, <laughs> the most important. Uh, you know, it, 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 it might be climate, because of all of the uh, lifestyle changes, they're going to have to uh, they're going to have to come with that. Uh, solid waste management is a big one, mainly because of the trash problems that we've got in state uh, streams. Uh, you know, I'm not giving you one, but nanoparticles is a thing that worries me because of uh, in, not just for uh, uh, 
uh, for aquatic health, but maybe for, even for human health as well. Uh, we, we got plenty that we got to pay attention to uh, going forward to make sure that uh, our lifestyles uh, are not creating problems uh, with our uh, environmental and public health at the same time. Well, Director Paler, we really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And, you know, this is, um, we ask this question of all of our guests, given we're the Batten School for Leadership and Public Policy, but what, what's a leadership lesson that you've learned that you wish someone would have would have taught you as either an undergraduate or graduate student? Well, I don't know that if that this exactly uh, fits the question, but I think the most important leadership lesson is um, it's not about you. You know, the, the important, the, the leaders who are going to make a difference are the, are the ones who understand what the uh, responsibilities and the mission of the uh, organization are uh, and listen to not just people within their uh, organization, but people outside of their organization uh, to get advice to find solutions. Um, uh, one of the books that I, that I read uh, said, you know, nobody can be smart enough to make all the right decisions uh, in an organization unless it's a really simple organization. Uh, so you've got to, um, you got to be committed to what your responsibilities in your organization are, and you've got to be humble enough to listen to the people around you and um, and let your decisions be um, uh, be molded, be sort of collective in some sense, but also be uh, be responsive to the information that you get from all of the different perspectives that are out there. Thank you so much to Director David Paler for joining us. Thank you to Aaron Melly for co-hosting. And thank you to our producers, Ben Feldman and Ben Teese. We'll be back with another episode next week. Stay safe.